All right. Why don't you turn to Malachi chapter 3, please? Malachi chapter 3 and 4 tonight. We will finish Malachi. And the people uh, in Malachi's days were um, indifferent, as you know, to their present sins, thinking that God would not judge them. So now God speaks once again in the first person and declares that he is coming to judge. Chapter 3, verse um, 1 through 7, he says, uh, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will um, prepare the way before me, and the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launder's soap. So the first two verses here, the coming of the forerunner Messiah, at the first coming, that's what he's talking about here. Uh, God would send the messenger to prepare the way. This is John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. You find it in Matthew 11:10, Mark 1, uh, verse 2 and 3, Luke 1, 76. It's all over there. John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. Um, he is six months older than Jesus. So he was the voice crying in the wilderness that Isaiah speaks about in Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5. God was sending the forerunner. They asked John many times, are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Who are you? I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. The Lord would come suddenly, notice, in his temple, he says there. This is Jesus again, this first coming. Um, as he even rebuked the commercialists and the hypocrisy as he came into the temple. In John chapter 2, verse 13 through 22, and he overthrew all the tables because of the merchandising, because of all the, all the stuff that was going on that really had nothing to do with God with the uh, Pharisees and the scribes. This was Zerubbabel's temple, which Herod enlarged. Jesus was dedicated there. He came to the temple as a baby as well as afterwards in Luke chapter 2, um, or, yeah, 2, verse 21 through 25. So the fulfillment of it. Now remember, there's 400 years between this last chapter, chapter 4, and the opening of the New Testament. 400 years of silence. No known prophet was speaking during this time. So you have the promise, as we're going to see, Malachi finishes with the message of crying out to Israel. The message is repentance. And when 400 years pass, John the Baptist begins, the kingdom of God's at hand, repent. Same message, nothing that changed in 400 years. And so Jesus, here in verse 1, is the, mes the messenger of the covenant, whom God delights in his son. Uh, the word for angel is the same as here. Jesus often in the Old Testament is called the angel of the Lord in Exodus 23 and uh, many other portions that we've seen. Uh, this is the new covenant that he's talking about that's coming. Apart from the old, the old is the law. The law only showed us our guilt. The law couldn't justify us before God. The law couldn't present us. All it could do is accuse us. No one could keep the law. So Jesus came and fulfilled it for us. The evil will not endure his coming in verse 2. As it says here, uh, the day of his coming, this is the second coming. So chapter, verse 1, you have the first coming, now you have the second coming. God is the consuming fire, Hebrews twelve twenty nine tells us. He's the epitome of holiness. He is the perfection of purity, a refiner. Fire, 
and launders soap, indicating he will consume all that's offensive to him. Nothing can stand before him. The preview is given in the second psalm. Why do the heathen rage? Why do they imagine vain thing? I will have them in derision. I will laugh at them. And the psalm finishes, kiss the son lest he be angry with you. That's an idolatrous practice. You kiss your saints, you kiss your virgin, you kiss your scapular, you kiss your rosary, you kiss anything that you think is holy. What's Psalm 2 saying? You want to kiss somebody, you kiss the only holy one, Jesus Christ. You worship him, no one else. And so in verse 3 and 4, the setting for the millennial reign now comes. The first, second coming, now the millennial. Then the um, offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord. As in that day, of, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I, and I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against the adulterer, against the perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So here in verse 4, um, 3 and 4, um, and five down there, the setting up of the millennial kingdom. Jesus will sit in authority, verse 3, on his throne, the refiner of silver, as he purifies all things. You refine and you purify silver and gold by heat. All the impurities come to the top. He will judge in answer to where is the God of justice that they just said in chapter 2, verse 17. If he's, if he's going to judge, where is he? I'm, I'm living in sin. He hasn't gotten me. Well, be patient. He'll get you. Jesus will purge the sons of Levi, notice, as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. Verse 3 says, priestly service will be in full function during the millennial kingdom and temple. Sacrifice will be reinstituted. Peter may not be very happy, but it's okay. The Levites will be officiating the service, having purged them, now are acceptable before the Lord. You can look up the whole sacrifice thing, and specifically in Ezekiel 43, the millennial temple. Zechariah 14, 16, and 21 told us how everybody must come once a year uh, to the Feast of Tabernacles, or they will not get rain. Notice verse 4. God the Father and Jesus will be pleased with the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem and the, as in the days of old. The wife is re reconciled to the husband, Yahweh. Psalm 118.24 says, This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That's the millennial kingdom. That's the kingdom age that he's talking about. The kingdom age promised to the remnant of Israel, an earthly material kingdom. Jesus, their Messiah, will reign. The church is looking for a spiritual kingdom. And we will reign with Christ. We will not be um, the priest there for that. We're reigning with him. The kingdom's for Israel, not for the church. They will receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Notice the judgment. Five. Jesus judges all evil in verse five. Judgment is swift against the sorcerers, also practice witchcraft, sorcery with the occult. Deuteronomy 18.10, Revelation 9.10.20 and 21 tells us about that also. During the tribulation period, there's going to be demonic activity like never before. Those that practice witchcraft and sorcery. 
against adulterers. It says in verse 6, those who defile the covenant of marriage just for their own pleasure. The Proverbs is full of this. Chapter 6, 27, 35 speak very specific. The warning, the first nine chapters, wisdom is personified as a woman, warning the young man to be careful. And the warning about giving your honor to someone else and not throwing your life away. Then he says against perjurers, those that are false in their words, fraudulent, deceptive. Zechariah, remember in chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, he speaks about that. And then against exploitation of the weak and the helpless, widows and the orphans. Those who are defrauded, cheated, easily stolen from. The most vulnerable, the most weak in society, wage earners, widows, and orphans. James 5, 4 speaks about that. Exodus 22, 22 through 24. The law is full of it. God cares for the orphans, for the widows, over and over again. And yet there are people that will always be um, um, taking advantage of people. Always. Against all rejecting the alien, he says at the end there. Because the alien was the stranger, those who were not Jewish in background. So God says, don't treat him like that. You were a slave. You were in bondage. You were a stranger one time. And so he deals very sharply with that. The one speaking is the Lord. The Lord of hosts. The captain of the armies of heaven. And so very, very, very straightforward. God is, um, is dealing with the whole issue of his righteous judgment. In verse 6 again, he says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Now, we went through this section down from verse 6 down to 12 in depth this morning. I'm not going to belabor. You can get the message. I would encourage you if you weren't here. But um, here again, God declares his immutability. He doesn't change. In other words, he's holy, and he acts according to his holiness. Uh, he hates sin. Um, Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, the you know, the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy art thou God. And Isaiah saw the throne of God high and lifted up. And, you know, and he saw the holiness of God. And, you know, he saw, he says, I'm, I'm a man undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And cherubim grabbed the coal from the altar and touched his lips. And said, who shall I send? Send me. And he goes as God's messenger. Man is sinful. God hates sin. So unless God makes those provisions and we yield to those provisions, we can be one with God. God gives always a way of repentance, a way out. Second Peter 3, 9. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's long-suffering. Always. We've seen this completely here. He, he's chiding with them. They're being sarcastic. You know, they're, they're throwing back the words to God. Well, you know, I have, you know, he says, you know, you're lucky you're not consumed. The sons of Jacob here. Talking about Israel. Their history is sinful. Return to me. That's repentance. Return to me. But they're just indifferent, completely callous. They said, in what way shall we repent? There at the end of verse 7. 
That's incredible. They would not acknowledge their abusiveness towards God and they're living for sin. They saw no need of repentance. Verse 8 through 12, you have the robbing of God that he deals with very specifically. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. So God just deals very straightforward. It's a rhetorical question. Will a man rob God? The only answer is no. That's the correct answer. He's dealing with his people. The question reveals the audacity of the people and the willful ignorance of them dealing with a holy God. And so, here again, the people denied their crime in an arrogant and sarcastic manner. In what way have we robbed you, he says there in verse 8. That you robbed me. But you say, in what way? To rob God was to cheat and defraud him in what belonged to him. He gave them everything. The tithe, as I, we said this morning, um, was more than 10%. You had 10% that was for the, um, uh, the Levites in Leviticus 27, 30 through 33. It was 10% for the, the first fruits that came in also. You have that in Numbers uh, 18. And then Deuteronomy also. And there was a 10% every three years for the poor in Deuteronomy 14. So if you look at it all and you really assess it, it's probably about 24, 27% really that we're coming up to in the Old Testament. Now, um, we mentioned this morning that the New Testament is not really under law. Okay? And so God desires that we, what we do give to him, we give to him because we love him. And not because we're being promised that we're going to get one out of ten or ten out of one, just the reverse. But that we give to God because we love Him. You know, when you give somebody a birthday present, you give it to them because they love them. You may not have much money, but whatever you have, you give with all your love. And, and, and when they, it's accepted, it's appreciated. And so, um, the practice of the Pharisees was still tithing. In fact, Jesus rebuked them for their hypocritical separation of nine for the Lord and nine for me and one for the Lord <laughs> in Luke uh, eleven forty two, And he called them hypocrites. Woe to you. God is not interested in what we do not have and taking what we do not have. God's just interested that we give to him from what we have. And this is very clear in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. We're to do it hilariously. In 2 Corinthians 8, 12 through 14, that no one is just kicking back. Nobody can say, well, you know, the, a hundred of us bought this whole building. I don't know who bought this. The Lord did it through all of us. We don't take uh, your name. We don't give you a plaque. We, we don't um, do fundraisers. We don't wash cars. We don't bake cookies. We don't send letters out. We just trust the Lord we teach the Word of God, teach you what the Word of God says, and we trust the Lord to do. And when we have to make adjustments, we make adjustments, and it's up to God. We live within our means, whatever God provides. And we're not here to burden anybody or anything else. Whenever ministers begin to tell you how broke God is and how you need to give them, you know, this amount and this and that, whatever, get up and walk out. That's between you and God. No one else. People ask me all the time. That's between you and the Lord. And so, 
he deals with the giving. This is where he accuses them. In verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. So it's amazing that the whole nation had just gone so far away from God. Because remember, the, the Levites were supported by the nation. Because they were doing the priestly, everything else. They never inherited any land. Okay? They didn't receive that. And so here he, he confronts them completely. And um, the curse is not that God curses them, but that he's following through on the promises of blessings or cursings back in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Okay? So it all depended upon their obedience. God is always, he says, I change not. He's immutable. He can increase, he can decrease. God is holy and he hates sin. As I said this morning, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The sun doesn't change. It depends on the kind of material is exposed. And so we love the Lord and if we're obeying God, then God's going to bless us. God's going to direct and guide us. If we're living in sin, we're disobeying Him, then we're going to read the consequence of that. It's real simple. It's not that difficult. And so, in verse 10, down to 11, the solution of God that He gives here um, for their meager crops and to give them an abundant harvest. Um, verse 10, He says, uh, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. So here, uh, verse 10 is, is interesting. It's a command to bring this because they weren't doing it, to bring the storehouse. And this is from the crops and, and the, 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 the vintage and all of that. And God gives the purpose that there would be food in us out because the Leviticus... A Levitical service, again, was by the Levites. Um, Nehemiah chapter 13, he went through it because they were disobedient also. Um, the reason was also to prove God in his faithful provisions. Try me, he says, now, in, in, in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing enough to, you can't even receive it. The windows of heaven means rain. We're dealing with farmers here, agriculture. Okay, of course, the crops, you sell them, you whatever, you barter, whatever it is. But this is what he's dealing with here. The windows of heaven speak of the abundance of crop, the abundance of harvest. But again, it's in relationship to their obedience to walk with God, to repent. Okay, not just to slow down with sin, but to turn away from sin and to obey God. In verse 11, God reveals he would ensure the harvest from pest and the weather and anything else that came its way. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fall to bear fruit for you in that field, says the Lord. So here again in verse 11, it's very, very clear. The word devour means that which eats up or consumes. Talking about weather, pests, and different things that come by. The fruit of the ground, the vine, will not fail. Many of the minor prophets, Amos chapter 4, Haggai chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 8, 9, 10, many, many of the minor prophets, even the major prophets. It was always in relationship to God's blessings and cursings, their obedience or disobedience, walking with God or turning away from God. Now, 
If God has not changed and the people of God had not changed then, do you think anything's changed? It's the same thing. Just because we're under grace doesn't mean that you can't turn away from God. The law condemns you, declares you guilty before God, so you're not presenting yourself before God to be justified because you keep certain things and you don't do other things. You're justified before God because of the death of Jesus Christ as he paid for our sins. But you can't exclude obedience as you're walking. If you say you know God, then you have to be walking in God. You have to be obeying God. That's the evidence of your Christianity. And so it's very important. Um, Sometimes people miss, they can't connect the dots. Now in verse 12, you have the abundance of the millennial kingdom. All of a sudden we get a little bit and we've seen this in the minor prophets. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So here again, as these guys are all indifferent and bitter and they're just resentful to God because he he hasn't come and the abundance hasn't come. And all of a sudden he says, hey, listen, the millennial is still coming. Okay, it's not in your time. You just walk with me. The land will be a delight during the millennial kingdom. The Lord of hosts is behind this authority. It's God's schedule, not ours. And then in verse 13 down to 15, you have the people. They were very disrespectful to God, as we've seen this sarcastic book. In verse 13, the people were speaking slanderous towards God. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, um, what have we spoken against you? Well, what haven't you spoken against? The word harsh there means to grow stout or rigid. In a bad sense. And then the rest of 13, God quotes the words. What have we spoken against you? They were consistent in their denial. They were, you know, and if you're a parent again and you have older kids and when this kind of thing happens, you're not very happy when you hear this kind of stuff. Because there's an attitude behind it. There's an arrogance behind it. And this is exactly what's going on here. The people were um, calling God a liar, really. In verse 14, the people were speaking maliciously towards God. He says, so now we call the proud blessed. So God turns around the sarcasm. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. So God charged them with their evil words against God. As they're speaking to one another in verse 14, he quotes them that there was no value in serving him you have said it's useless emptiness vanity to serve god wow contradicting the very nature of god in his word a life of service is a life well spent in this world serving god is the highest privilege but also look at 14 he's quoting them that there was no benefit in serving god what profit is it that we have kept his ordinances. Well, they really haven't. Maybe outwardly, but not inwardly. The word prophet simply means gaining and enriching by obeying God's word. Quoting them also, their worship was not appreciated by God. He was disinterested. They said and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. The word mourner simply refers to their false humility they're outward worship. They're going through all these rituals and doing these things. And like, you know, they're really 
you know, sacrifice for God, but that's outward stuff that doesn't matter because their lives were full of sin. And then they're still coming and attempting to worship God. And there are many people like that, you know, they're living in sin and they still, you know, they come before God and they, they you know, they pray to the Lord and they come to Bible studies, but they're, nothing, they're still out there doing their thing. Read the Bible, read it very clear, read the book of Ezekiel. As Ezekiel says, he says, Son of man, do you see what these elders are doing and they're still coming before me? I will answer them according to their deception. You see, he hands them over. In verse 15, he says, So now we call the proud blessed, for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God to go free. So he rebukes them for their praising the proud. They're blessed. The sarcasm reveals how ludicrous the words of the people are. When you depart from God, you have no standard. Everybody does whatever they want. Still in verse 15, God rebuked them for promoting the wicked. The wicked are being raised up. Look around our nation. Look around our state. Look around your city. Amazing. Sarcasm again reveals the insanity of such a thing. Unchecked sin will result in greater sin. And lastly, there in verse 15, God rebuked them for pardoning the blasphemous. They even tempt God. They don't, they don't bring consequences to the guilty and the blasphemer, but they set him free, releasing him. Discounting that God is holy and cannot compromise with evil. They're ignoring God would judge them, every person. Though they set the guilty free, God will judge them. So Malachi closes the Old Testament with the cry of repentance. 400 years going to pass, as I said. It's going to open up the very same way in Matthew 3, 1 and 2. And so... Verse 16 to 18, you have the faithful remnant. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Verse 16, the silent listener here is God. You know, um, Sometimes we, we, we look around to see if somebody's looking or if somebody's going to be listening. But yet God sees and hears everything. The context is to the Jewish remnant here, okay? We can apply it in principle to us, but the context is the Jewish remnant here. Then those who feared the Lord spoke one to another, and the Lord listened and heard them. They speak to one another about God's goodness, His faithfulness. And everything else in contrast to those of verse 13. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Proverbs 1, 7 and 9, 10 says. Wisdom. Knowledge is information. Understanding brings assimilation and accommodation. And it produces wisdom making the right choices of that information. There's a lot of people that are brilliant. But they're not very wise. They don't have that ability to common sense and put things together. 
The Lord is listening. He heard their conversations. So notice the book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. God has the book of remembrance for those who fear him. Those who meditate upon his name. You know, there are so many things that distract you and myself. There are so many evil things that will want to bombard your mind as you're driving down the street or whatever it is. And you have to bring your thoughts captive. There are so many things that Satan would want to bring before your mind about your life before Christ to condemn you or other people, whatever it is. Or maybe there's some things that you have against people and Satan brings them up and you have to put them under and you have to realize that God has forgiven you. So you meditate upon God, you fear Him, you revere Him, you understand what He's done for you. God has a book of remembrance for these individuals and there is also a book of, for judgment. In the book of Revelation, as you know, the books are open in chapter 20, verse 11 on down. Um, there's also the book of life that is written with those who are saved. Exodus 32, 32. Esther 2, 23. Psalm 56, 8. Uh, Luke 10, 20. Revelation 20, 12. And there's others. Just punch it in your computer, book of life, or books, and it'll come up. Now, God knows who they are. He knows before it even happens. So God does have books. Is it because he, you think he's going to forget? But he does say in the books of life were open. And there are other books that he opens up there in the white throne judgment. No one will escape the judgment. No one will say, oh, well, you know, you've you, you got something wrong. No one's going to say, I didn't do that. Everybody's going to be silent that they're judging the white throne judgment. White throne judgment for the non-believer, not for the Christian. We go through the beam of seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, okay? Verse 10 on down. And God will judge the motive of our heart, why we did the things we did and how we did them. And if everything gets burned up because we did it with bad motives, we will be saved even as by fire because you're saved by grace through faith that not of yourself is a gift to God, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But the white throne judgment that he's talking about People are not brought up for a second chance. They're brought up to be sentenced. They're already guilty when they die and they're in hell. Then they're brought up to be sentenced for the lake of fire. Matthew 25, 41 says that the lake of fire was made for no one but Satan and his angels. Yes, and yet billions of people, trillions of people will be in there because they rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amazing. 17 and 18, the remnant of Israel. In the last days, he speaks here. He says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And so once again, the context is the Jewish remnant. Um, they shall be mine, says the Lord. In that day, the kingdom age, the remnant, will be his treasure. Exodus 19.5, Romans 11.26. I will spare them as a man spares his own son 
who serves him. Again, he's speaking to the Jewish remnant. The remnant, the wife of God, is reconciled to him. Then you shall again discern between righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. So during the kingdom age, they will realize as Jesus returns and he gathers them from the four corners of the earth, they will realize they crucified their Messiah. They will weep. They will realize what's going on. And in that day, as they are there in the millennial kingdom and the whole world serves the Jew, all the Gentiles, all the wealth, we've gone through this before, is brought to Israel. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world politically, financially, spiritually, it will be the capital. Now, now, people aren't too happy about that, but it doesn't matter. God's not a Democrat nor a Republican. He's God, okay? And he does what he wills. And no one can say, what are you doing? And so, um, then they will be able to discern good and evil. That's the only way we can do that. If you walk with God, you can see clearly what's right, what's wrong. But if you don't walk with God or you start compromising, then you're going to walk in the flesh and things get cloudy. Things get funky. So the wisdom is to walk with the Lord. When you come to chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, now the day of judgment is at his return here. Um, verse 1 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning, like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, this is the day of judgment that will come. The day is certain. For behold, the day is coming. The chapter break is a little bit unfortunate. Because it still contains the same theme. Remember, chapter division verses were made by men, not by God. Okay? We did it to find verses easy. And for the most part, the divisions are pretty good. Sometimes they can be adjusted, a section or a verse. This is one of those places. Um, the Hebrew Bible um, is part, uh, joins them together, chapter 3 and 4. So there is 24 verses in the last chapter because he joins them together. And um, also the Hebrew Bible, verse 5, when we get there, is repeated after verse 6 so as not to end up with a negative note. That's interesting. <laughs> this is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord begins with the removal of the church and the rapture. Uh, Russia attacking Israel, Ezekiel 38, 39. The Antichrist appearing on the scene, Revelation chapter 6. Great deception. The day of the Lord begins it. All those things happen at the same time. First three and a half years, false peace through the Antichrist. The middle of those seven years, the abomination of desolation. As the Antichrist builds the temple, he declares himself God as he walks in it. The Jewish nation flees to Petra, we believe, Isaiah 16, 1. Revelation 12.3, and there God will take care of them. The last three and a half years is great tribulation. No one will be able to live, buy, sell, do anything without the mark of the beast. He will be merciless. He will not allow anybody to be worshipped but himself. 
And so it's going to be, that's all part of the day of the Lord. As the Lord comes back in the second coming, and you have the armies of the world gathered together to try to stop Jesus from setting up the kingdom. The day of the Lord is the theme that we've seen over and over again through the minor prophets. Here in Malachi 3, 2, 3.17, 4.1, 4.3, 4.5. It's a common theme. Um, That's why Matthew 24, Jesus spoke about the day of the Lord. No man knows the day of the hour because he's talking to who? The Jew. The Jew goes through the tribulation. The church is removed prior to tribulation. The Jew is the wife that will be reconciled to God. The church is the virgin bride that's looking for a wedding. Big difference. The wife, earthly kingdom. The bride, a heavenly spiritual kingdom. Big contrast. Don't confuse them. And so, here the judgment, notice in verse 1, no one will survive. Leave. He will not leave neither root nor branch. So when you're brought up before the white throne judgment in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, if you are brought up, if you do not make it in the rapture, if you come before God, it isn't for a second chance. It is only to sentence you for everything you've ever done in your rejection of Jesus Christ. God will give different punishments, different levels. If you as a parent, as evil as we are, We discipline our children. And where there's law, there's degrees of punishment depending on the crime. Now, that's going away pretty fast around us. But nevertheless, we know what we're talking about. If we as evil men do this, how much more God? In other words, when God sentences somebody to the lake of fire who has been a good moral person but rejected the gospel, there will be a certain level. When one has been blasphemous and just a horrendous person, do you think they're going to put them on the same level? No, it's going to be worse. Because he's holy, he's just, and he's good. God will reward us differently also. There'll be different levels. Okay? It's just that simple. Because God knows the intent of the heart. Again, the one speaking is the um, Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. Verse 2 and 3 says, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteous shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall uh, fed calves. A lot of farm imagery here, agriculture. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under your soles of your feet. On that day I, that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. So, here in verse 2 and 3, the day of the kingdom is for the righteous. Again, he's talking to the remnant of Israel, the nation. In contrast, he says, notice the contrast, but you who fear my name, the son of right, S-U-N, but righteousness is capitalized rightly because the translators understood and understand clearly that this is speaking about the son of God. Okay? He shall rise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. In that day, Israel will just blossom and flourish. The whole world will be against it, as it is right now. But this is nothing to what it's going to be right before the Antichrist comes on the scene. 
In fact, the title of the Lord during the millennial kingdom is the Lord our righteousness, the Lord to sit canoe. You shall trample the wicked, it says, for they shall be ashes under your shoes of your feet. On that day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, so that they will see the triumph of the righteous over the wicked. We don't see that right now. We see it in some places where there's law and justice, and America certainly has been. It's a nation of law, a republic. It's not a democracy. People don't understand that. The politicians don't understand that. Congressmen, even presidents. They call it a democracy. We've never been a democracy. Read your Constitution, your Bill of Rights. Read it all. We're a republic, a nation of laws, three branches, so they don't conflate. They check and balances. Very simple. And yet as Jesus returns, the first thing he will do is he will have the judgment of the nations, Matthew 25, verse 32 to 46, on what they did and how they treated the Jew during the great tribulation. When you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. A cup of cold water, visited in prison, Matthew 24, 25, Jewish ground. That's not for missionaries. Out of context. It's the Jew. And as the Lord sets up the millennial kingdom, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. At the end, there will be another release of Satan and he will lead the biggest rebellion. And the majority of people, after living a thousand years with Jesus reigning on the earth, the whole millennial kingdom being reversed in terms of the creation, the ferocity of the animals, though there will still be death. They will follow Satan. So it's not your environment that makes you evil. It's your heart. The environment may facilitate you, but you're not bad because of your dad, because of your home. You're bad because it's you. Your heart. There will be no psychologists in the millennial kingdom. They can't blame anybody. Okay? Nobody will be saying, oh, I was from a dysfunctional family. Read Ezekiel 18. And 33, it speaks about cases of a son having an equal, a, a wicked father. He can be like his father or not like his father. God does not judge the son for the sins of the father, nor the reverse. And you can be in a horrible home, then you're to learn. You don't want to be like that horrible person. So you have a choice. You can't blame your father. You can't blame your mother. You can't blame your wife, your husband, or anybody. You make those choices. Simple human responsibility. Ezekiel 18 says it very clear. Ezekiel 33. Very, very clear. And so, after the millennial aspect deals with that, the white throne judgment, then there's new heaven, the new earth. Revelation 21 and 22. Now, in verse 4 through 6, you have the redeeming prophet Elijah. He says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Again, the context is all Israel. It's all Jew. You don't put the church in here. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming and great day of the Lord. 
And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their parents, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Notice here in verse 4, the Jews are the ones addressed again. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, that he commanded in Horeb for Israel, the statutes, the judgments. You and I are not under the law. Israel was to remember this. Why? Because the promises of his coming, sending Elijah. Very important. The promised sign of Elijah's coming before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It's a day of gloom, a day of indignation, a day of wrath, the day of the Lord. It's not a day of light. It's of ultimate judgment. Now, what's the world saying? Oh, you guys believe about God's going to judge this world? You guys think we're going to have to stand? You know, yeah. Absolutely. You know, a blind man can feel the heat of the sun, but he can't see it. And people feel the pressure of this world and the evil. But they don't dare see the judgment of God upon it. They don't have eyes to see. They're blind. Now Jesus said that John the Baptist came in the power and the spirit of Elijah in Matthew eleven fourteen and 17. Also Mark 9, 11 through 13. Luke 1, 16 through 17. So they asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? No. Who are you? Are you the Messiah? No. Who are you? I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. But then Jesus says, if you can receive it, Elijah has come. And he speaks in the power and the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist's cousin. So you have a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. The short-term fulfillment, Elijah came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, Luke says. Long-term fulfillment, he will be one of the two witnesses that will be witnessing against the Antichrist. One of the two that will lie in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. And God will raise them up before the whole world. And God will pour his wrath out on this world. Amazing. The other one, we've talked about it. Enoch hasn't died. He's my number one choice. God speaks about Zerubbabel. Others think Moses. We'll find out. It could be Daffy Duck. It doesn't matter. There's going to be two of them. One for sure is Elijah. No doubt. My number one candidate for the second one is Enoch because he has never died either. In Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto every man to die once, then the judgment. So, he will appear in Revelation 11. That's where you find the two witnesses. Notice in verse 6 the purpose of his coming. Repentance. What a surprise. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the parents, the fathers. You who are parents, you be a lighthouse, as I said this morning. You stand fast. You be rooted. You be grounded. You don't move away. You be that example, proclaiming to your children, teaching them, bringing consequence. People, well, I'm afraid I'm going to lose them. Listen, if they're disobeying you, if they're not walking with God, they're lost already. You don't allow them to bring the house down. You're the parent. You do all you can for your child. You will be merciful. You will be loving. You'll go out of your way. But there comes a place where you have to draw that line and you say, son, daughter, you can't be here anymore. Now, they're under 18. You're responsible. You live in my house. 
You eat my food, you shower in my shower, you sleep in my bed, you're going to church. It's not a question, it's not a suggestion. If not, then you can move out. Once you're an adult, you can do whatever you want. You can pay your own bills, have at it. Everybody gets a shot at life. You want to start early? Go for it. Let's see what happens. Your friends will put up with you for a week or two. Their parents less. All right? It's not that comfortable sleeping in a car all the time. And so here again, you as parents are responsible. But even here, some of the children... And we've seen this where kids get born again and then their parents get saved because of them. But there's a lot of parents who now follow their children. A lot of the young people who go to emergent churches where they were in really strong, clear teaching Bible churches. And because of the carnality and the attraction, they go to emergent churches where they don't believe that you can learn any objective truth from the Word of God. And the parents follow like a bunch of dodos. Scratch my head. How can that be? Who's the child? Who's the parent? Wow. What judgment. God will hold me responsible what I did for my son and my daughter. Whether I held them responsible with all loving compassion. Or whether I gave in to my emotions and I thought I knew better than God. He will hold me responsible for that. He'll hold them responsible for their sins, but he will hold me responsible as a parent. Make no mistake of that, ladies and gentlemen. Make no mistake of that. And so Malachi closes the Old Testament with a curse and a cry of repentance. <laughs> now, you know, if you're going to get some advice about writing a book, they're going to tell you, don't finish this way. Well, God's not interested in pleasing man. He's not interested in selling enough books, <laughs> though the Bible is the bestseller still. <laughs> but that's because it's God's Word. And so, I can't encourage you enough. You have had a great foundation, those of you who have gone through the Old Testament with us. Now the New Testament builds on that foundation. You see this building here? It's gone through a lot of heavy earthquakes. The gym. Because the foundation was strong. If we would have laid a very shabby foundation, those earthquakes, the Whittier earthquake, when we bought the building in 1987. We bought, moved in 86, but October 1st of 87, the Whittier earthquake came. This thing would have come down. I don't care how strong the walls are or the trestles or that. If the foundation is weak, the whole thing will crumble. How's your foundation? Are you grounded in Christ Jesus? Rooted? Growing? What would move you away from God? Some personal disappointment? Some sweet, wiggly little thing? What is it? Money? Fame, I tell you, you may think it's worth it right now, but when you're in Gehenna, the lake of fire, you're not going to think you made a right choice. Trust me, 
God wants to bless you. God wants to direct your life. God wants to use you to reach others for the kingdom of God. The message is simple. Repent from your sins. God is graceful and he will forgive you of your sins. And he will make you a child of God by grace through faith. I can handle that. If you tell me I have to do certain things, then I'm, I, I can't. I won't make it. But I can trust that Jesus died in my place. And that he paid the price for my sin. And all he wants me to do is believe in him and trust him and walk with him. And he gives me his word. He gives me his spirit. He gives me his mind. And then I have to put him on. I have to obey him. Free will. Otherwise, how will he know if I really love him? The way you know someone really loves you is by what they do. Not what they say. If your wife or husband said, oh, I love you, and every time, you know, they, they'd go out on you. Would that prove their love for you? No. But if they're faithful to you, regardless of the things you go through, loyal, then you know their love is true. Time is the test of all things. God gives you rope to swing across the chasm or to hang yourself. It's up to you. It's always a choice, ladies and gentlemen. No one will be able to blame anybody on Judgment Day. Great news. God is merciful, compassionate. He wants to pluck you out of the fire. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. And Lord, I pray for everyone here that your hand be upon us, Lord. You would speak to our hearts. And Lord, we thank you for this book. Thank you for the Old Testament. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You might be over the Internet. The same goes for you. And if you believe what I've just shared, then you can be saved. You can call upon him. And he will save you right where you're at right now, by grace through faith. You believe with your heart and confession is made with your mouth. You're saved by grace through faith and not of yourself. This is your prayer of repentance if you want to be born again. And he's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.